Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. This lesson was previously recorded by Michelle in front of a live audience. Paul wrote many letters from prison while he awaited trial in Rome, and over the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of them. His letter to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia was first. Those Christ followers, as you may remember, were being inundated by false teachers who had come from a Jewish background and who were trying to add a lot of Judaism's ritualistic laws to faith in Christ, saying that salvation was only available to faithful Jews. They taught that Gentiles really needed to become Jewish before they could be accepted by God. And this was contrary to the teaching of the apostles, who taught that it was by Christ's death alone that a person could be saved. Paul firmly clarified that we become part of God's people based on faith alone. Though Christ knew no sin of his own, he took our sin upon himself on the cross, dying in our place, so that as we place our faith in him, we're able to receive a righteousness from God that doesn't depend on the law of Moses. Paul taught in his letter to the Galatians that what really matters is God's new creation and that Jew and Gentile alike could become God's children on the basis of faith in Jesus. As Christ followers, we can live new lives and become the people God always meant us to be by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. When we studied Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, we realized that he was living out Jesus' story in his own life because even in prison, Paul was following Christ's example. Emptying himself of his past glory and power as a legalistic Jew, Paul had become a servant of others. Like Christ his Lord, he was willing to meet people on their own level, and Paul even became like the Gentiles he ministered to. He did it all for the glory of God and for the extension of Christ's kingdom. And in his letter to the Philippians, he encouraged others to do the same, not in their own strength, but in the strength that only Christ alone could give. As we now come to his final letter, or the last one at least that we'll be studying in the series, we look at his communication from prison to the Colossians. Though he'd never been to Colossae, he had sent Epaphras there to plant a church. And though Paul had not met the believers of that city, he'd heard reports about them from his friend. The Colossians were mainly Gentiles who were trying to live free of the pagan worship rituals they had followed in the past. But like the churches of Galatia, they too were being pressured by false teachers. In his letter to them, Paul not only painted a beautiful picture of Christ as being above all and limited by nothing, he also dug into the truth that they as believers had been delivered from the power of darkness by God himself. The loving rule of Jesus as Lord now applied to every part of their human existence, as God enabled them to live a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit, and as we shall soon see, 
these truths still apply to us today. So let's begin our study and look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Because Paul had never been to Colossae, he knew that it was necessary to underscore his authority from the opening sentence. And he does this by confirming that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word apostle actually means one who is sent out. And so from his opening words, he advises them that he's one of those sent out with the message of Christ and that this call had come by the will of God himself. These greetings come from him and another brother in the Lord, Timothy, who was probably acting as scribe as Paul dictated his letter. The letter was being sent to God's holy people in Colossae, and that's to say it was being sent to those who through their belief in Christ had been set apart in service of God. Notice Paul says that they are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, being in Christ makes us part of God's family, and because of that, we are now related to one another as believers. One common family trait that we all share is faithfulness not only faithfulness to the Lord, but to one another as well. As Christ followers, faithfulness is something we should be known for simply because God himself is faithful. We should be known for that too. The grace and peace that come from God himself is another hallmark of the Christian life. And after Paul greets them in this way, he then immediately goes on to tell them of how he and his associates prayed for them. He says in verse 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Though they may not have met the Colossians, Paul and his co-workers gave thanks to God for what they heard about them through others. They'd heard reports of the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus, as well as the fact that their love for Jesus was being expressed by them showing love to all of God's people. Paul states that this kind of faith and godlike love really comes from the hope we have stored up for us in heaven. But what does he really mean by that? Well, in everyday life, we often talk about hope as if it is an uncertain desire. For example, we may say that we hope to be able to get a job soon or perhaps to see a relative from far away. We may desire those things, but we cannot be certain that the things we long for will actually come to pass. However, biblical hope is different. The Greek word that Paul uses here for hope is elpis, and in a Christian sense, it means the joyful and confident expectation that we shall have all that God has promised us. You see, there's nothing uncertain about this kind of hope, and we receive it as we hear and believe in the true message of the gospel when it's preached to us. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ who came to reconcile us to God the Father and to anchor us in God's presence in heaven through his death on the cross. 
Because the Colossians were focused on heaven, they were able to live for God in the present, showing his love to others, and that should be no different for us today. Paul wanted the Colossians to be assured that this was the effect that the gospel had on people wherever it was preached, and he declared that in verse 6, saying, In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and fully understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Paul wanted them to know that wherever the truth about Christ was preached, and wherever people understood about God's grace and kindness shown in sending Jesus, the message had the same effect. It transformed people's lives. You see, Christ accepts us the way that we are, but he doesn't want us to stay the way that we are. Paul's dear friend Epaphras had first shared the gospel with them, and Paul confirms that though Epaphras was a minister of Christ, he had been sent on Paul's behalf with the message, for it was Paul who'd commissioned him to go into that area in the first place. Apparently, Paul and Epaphras had stayed in touch, though, because Paul states that most of the news he had about them had come from Epaphras, who shared with him about the love they showed to others because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work within them. And it was because of these reports that Paul had been praying continually for them, and this is what he prayed. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want us to take a careful look at Paul's prayer because it teaches us a lot about how to pray for others. From the moment he had heard about these believers, Paul had not stopped praying for them. And already that's very challenging because I wonder if we could say the same thing about anyone other than our immediate families. I mean, how faithful in prayer are we for other believers? And when we do pray for others, what do we pray for? Paul continually asked that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will through the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And it was so that they could live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And I'm always really challenged about the way Paul prayed for others because one of his common themes was that they came to know God in a deeper way and be able to discern God's will for them so that they could please him. Now, we often try to persuade God to listen to us and to do our bidding, and we forget that we're supposed to listen to him and follow his commands. 
Paul specifically prays here for the Colossians' ability to know the will of God and to have the kind of wisdom and understanding that only the Holy Spirit could give so that they could put it into practice. You know, there are an awful lot of learned people in the world, people who know a lot of things but who have no real wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge, you see, are different. Knowledge is about possessing information, and really anybody can have that. However, wisdom is the practical ability to apply what you know in order to consistently make good decisions. The Bible states in Proverbs 9.10 that true wisdom begins when we come to respect God for who he is, and that as we come to know him more and more intimately, we find real understanding. Paul's prayer for them makes it clear that knowledge of God's will, as well as wisdom and understanding, all come through the work of the Holy Spirit, who gives us these things for a purpose. It is so that we can live a life that's worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. You see, as we know and obey God's will, we find ourselves able to live fruitful lives for Him. And we not only grow in our knowledge of Him, but we also grow in the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work in us and through us. It is by His glorious might that we're able to patiently stand strong for God, joyfully giving thanks to Him no matter what our circumstances, because we know it is the Lord Himself who has brought us into His kingdom of light and qualified us to share in the inheritance of His holy people. It's not really because of anything we've done, but rather it's because of what Christ has done on our behalf. I mean, think of it. What do you have to do to receive an inheritance? Nothing. You only have to have a relationship with the one who died. In the same way, we cannot earn our heavenly inheritance. That comes through our relationship with Christ Jesus who died for our benefit. Verse 13 is very important. It says, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. God himself has rescued us and moved us from the control of darkness into the realm of Christ our King. For people without God, the world is a dark and frightening place ruled by evil, but in Christ, God has set us free. The Bible tells us that Christ is our Redeemer, and redemption is the word that's used when a person is set free from slavery. Before coming to faith in Christ, we were enslaved by our fears and by our sin, and though we may not have known it, we really were in bondage to Satan. But by paying our debt, Jesus has purchased us. He has redeemed us with his own blood shed on the cross, and we've been liberated. Additionally, we no longer are under God's wrath. There is now no condemnation for those who have given their lives to Christ, because it is in him we've been forgiven. And though Satan may try to fool us, he no longer has any real hold on us, for we are now the children of God because of Christ's loving sacrifice. 
Having recounted the blessings that are ours in Jesus, Paul then went on to address the truth about Christ's supremacy, and this was for very good reason. You see, at that time, there was a group of false teachers known as the Gnostics who were spreading considerable error. The name Gnostic meant something like the intellectual ones, and so you can imagine that these people thought of themselves as being more learned than others, and they believed that they possessed a secret knowledge that others didn't. But Gnosticism and Christianity are mutually exclusive because they actually believe in things that are completely opposed to one another. However, some Gnostics did try to worm their way into the early churches. Unfortunately, we need to know a little bit about the Gnostics' false teaching if we're to really understand why Paul wrote some of the things he did to the Colossians. So without going into much depth, Gnostics believed in two realms. The spiritual realm where God dwelt was good, but the physical one where mankind lived was bad. They taught that the world of man was so evil that a good God could never have created it. And so they taught the lie that the earth had been created by a lesser God who was evil. The Gnostics God was supposed to have created lesser versions of himself. And these lesser gods made other beings beneath them. And that all was repeated again and again and again until by accident one lesser being was made to be evil. They said it was that that lesser evil thing who had created the world that we know and that now ruled over it pretending to be God. According to them, the God who was good was very far removed from the earth. He had nothing to do with its creation and didn't care about what happened here. And that meant that you could do whatever you liked with your body. You could commit any sin, no matter how horrible, and it really didn't matter because your physical body was supposed to be evil anyway. They didn't believe that Jesus is God the Son, and they rejected the truth that Christians hold to, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Their so-called God was so far removed from the earth, they could not accept the Christian truth that God had taken on human flesh and come to earth to bring salvation. They rejected the Christian teaching of redemption, that God in his mercy sent his own son to pay the price for us to be reconciled to the Father. And instead, they believed that a person was only saved when they possessed a secret piece of knowledge about God that wasn't available to everyone. They taught that you earn salvation by finding these secret mystical pieces of knowledge in order to work your way up through the different levels to finally reach their very distant God. If you had to sum up the deceit, the lies in their teaching, they disputed who Christ really is. They disputed what he accomplished on the cross, and they disputed how our lives should be lived. Because they could not accept that a person could be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Gnostics had no power to change, but worse still, they had no desire to change either. Now, 
Let's look at what Paul writes to the Colossians in verse 15 as he begins to address these issues by speaking of the supremacy of Christ. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you see how many of the Gnostic false teachings Paul is actually addressing here in just these six verses alone? He declares that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he uses a Greek word for image that meant that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God. God is not visible to us, but for us to see what God is like, we need only look at Jesus because he perfectly represents God to us in a form that we can know and understand. The disciple John put it this way in his gospel, saying in John chapter 1 verse 18, that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Christ is the one who shows us who God is. Paul goes on to advise that Jesus is, in fact, the firstborn over all creation. Now, in saying that, he doesn't mean that Jesus was born or created at a certain point, for Christ, being God, is eternal. Rather, Paul meant that Jesus has the firstborn rights to everything. In other words, he is the sole inheritor, but he is also the one who distributes God's riches to those who are in God's family. And that's not very different to African culture in many countries where the firstborn son is the sole inheritor and he is the one to distribute the wealth to the rest of the family. It was through Christ that all things were created, whether in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. John puts it this way in John chapter 1 verse 3, saying that um, about Christ, that through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. So not only is Christ the creator, but he is also the sustainer of all things as well, because Colossians tells us he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is saying here that the laws which hold the universe and everything in it together are not only scientific laws, they are also Christ's divine laws. Jesus is superior to all creation and he controls it all. Not only that, but Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body here on earth. 
For it was through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that the church came into existence. Paul says that Christ is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have supremacy. Now, that's interesting because we all know that people were raised from the dead in the Old Testament, as well as Lazarus in the New Testament. He, too, was raised from the dead before Christ. However, Christ's resurrection is different. You see, those other people were raised to their old lives, the ones they had before they died, and then they went on to live and to die again. However, Christ, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised and he lives now forevermore. Christ is not merely someone who lived and died and of whom we read and learn. He is someone who, because of his resurrection, is alive forevermore and whom we meet and experience. So he's not a dead hero or a past founder. Rather, he is a living presence. According to verse 19, all the fullness of God is found in Christ. And Paul declares that Jesus was sent for a purpose. In verse 20, he reports that it was the Father's intention to reconcile us to himself through Christ. You see, man can be reunited with God and all of heaven and earth can be brought together again because Christ has made peace through his blood that he shed on the cross. Paul continues in verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Once we were separated from God because of our sin and our past evil behavior made us his enemies, but because Christ died on the cross, taking our sin upon himself, we are now able to receive his righteousness. And Paul proclaims that we are now holy in God's sight because we've put ourselves in Christ. We are now without blemish, without imperfection. And consequently, we're free from blame before God and no longer are under his judgment. Paul then goes on to urge the Colossians and us that because of all that we've received through Jesus and because of all that he is, we should continue to stand firm in our belief in the truth of the gospel. This was the truth that Paul had invested his life in, that our only hope is in Christ alone. God is not distant, he is very present, and he's interested in our lives on the planet that he created. We, we can never know enough or be smart enough to figure out another way to reconcile ourselves to him, because that is something that is only possible in Christ alone. And that's where we're going to leave it off for today. But join us next week as we go on in verse 24. Believe me, you won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus, who has accomplished that which we cannot. Thank you that he has reconciled us to you. 
And Lord, I pray that we would not hesitate to live in the hope that he has called us to, that certain expectation that everything you have promised in your word, you will see that we inherit because of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you so much and pray that you would use us to share this good news with others to the praise and glory of Christ's name alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.